This morning we're back to the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 26. It's on page 1164 in the Church Bible. A few weeks ago, as we were working through the book of Philippians uh, in the introductory prayer, uh, Paul's key prayer for the Philippian church, you may recall, is that they would grow in love and spiritual maturity so that they would learn to approve what is excellent. If you're here, you'll recall from that that approving what's excellent, it's not telling good from bad, right from wrong, but rather it's saying when we have a number of good options in front of us, how do we approve the best? How do we figure out what the excellent course of action is? And Paul offers up his own thinking about his current circumstance as a model for the Philippian church of what this looks like, what it looks like to uh, approve what is excellent. Listen as I read Philippians 1, uh, 18 through 26. And actually, we're beginning partway through the verse where the section heading is in the Pew Bible there. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. In this paragraph, uh, Paul covers a vast emotional range, and he has some of his most famous statements embedded here in this passage. Uh, perhaps, uh, to, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain is one of his key slogans. He begins and ends this paragraph with joy, first in verse 18, rejoicing that he knows that his current circumstances will result in his certain salvation. And then in verse 25, he ends hoping that his coming to the Philippians will lead them to rejoice in their faith, to renewed joy. But then there in the middle, Paul says he's pressed. He's torn between two decisions, between life and death. And I think as we begin this morning, it'll be helpful up front to ask, what are these choices Paul's torn between? What's he considering here? What is he contemplating? It might not surprise you to hear that commentators have suggested a wide variety of things. Everything from Uh, Paul is considering a merely hypothetical choice to Paul is contemplating suicide to get out of prison and everything in between. Well, I think we can reject both those extremes out of hand. On the one hand, the tone of this paragraph uh, tells us clearly that this is not just a hypothetical decision. Paul is burdened by real choices set before him. He's clearly in real turmoil. But on the other hand, as G.K. Chesterton notes in his book, Orthodoxy, suicide is the opposite of martyrdom. Suicide despairs of life, but Paul sees great value in his own life. 
Indeed, he sees that it's necessary that he continues living for the Philippians' growth. Suicide gives up on the world, but Paul is willing to give himself up for the sake of the world. No, what he's contemplating here is something different than suicide. Remember from the book of Acts, Paul was initially arrested in Jerusalem in part to avert a riot that was stirred up against him. Then there's a plot against his life, and so he's transferred to Caesarea. And while in Caesarea, the judge says, I would clear him, except that he appealed to Caesar, and so Paul is shipped off to Rome. And that's where he's writing from, in prison in Rome. Paul, of course, remembers that in Jesus' own trial, Jesus kept silent, and that was enough to get him executed. Paul knows he could do the same. And yet Paul is one of the most significant thinkers in all of human history, and he knows that he can articulate his case in a way that will have his name cleared. So there's live options before Paul. Does he follow Christ's example and simply remain silent when he appears in trial? Or does he argue his case, clear his name, and go free? Perhaps the question is more, where should I put my hope than what should I actually do? But it's clear that this is a real decision. And yet Paul is not hopeless when he considers his life. He's not writing in despair despite his prolonged imprisonment, which of course would have involved lots of pain and suffering. But neither is Paul fearful as he contemplates death. For him, this is no undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, which puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. No, Paul's quite confident he knows what stands on the other side of death. How is it then that Paul is so simultaneously life-affirming and yet looks at death not only with courage, but indeed with longing and desire? To understand this, we need to see three truths. First, there's more than just this life. And then second, to live is Christ. And third, to die is gain. The first truth we need to see is not explicitly taught in this passage, but rather presupposed by every sentence in this paragraph. There's more than just this life. There's more than just this life. Without this truth, we simply can't make sense of Paul's attitude or his way of thinking about life and death, which he offers as a model for all of us. We need to share his presupposition, his assumption, that there's more than just this life. But the problem is that our modern world is disenchanted. It's secular. Our basic assumptions deny that there's anything more than just this life. Or you can have a private opinion that there's something more than this life, but it shouldn't really affect the way you think about the world. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, and I apologize up front for quoting philosophy a little bit more than usual. Uh, The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor puts it this way, we live within an imminent frame. Our modern world simply frames like a picture frame, frames transcendence out of the picture. Let me try to illustrate what Taylor means. Uh, When you watch a sitcom like Seinfeld or Friends or whatever an up-to-date sitcom reference is, it looks like they're all interacting in an apartment, right? A real room. And yet if you've ever actually seen seen a picture of the actual television set, it's really only two or three walls, no ceiling. It has to be open so the camera can get in, the lights can get in, the microphones can get in. And in fact, if you see the boom mic in the shot, in the set, someone's not doing their job right. You're not supposed to think about all that stuff outside of it. And our world's a bit like that. 
It's not a closed thing that stands on its own. It's, it has to be open to God, to the transcendent, to be sustained. And yet the modern world we live in says, don't think about what's above, beyond, behind, outside of our world. Taylor comments, uh, I've articulated these facets of the imminent frame, these, these aspects of our secular age in some detail, and his book is over 800 pages long. It is quite detailed. But he says, partly in order to show that they function as unchallenged axioms rather than as unshakable arguments, that they rely on very shaky assumptions are often grounded on illegitimate naturalizations of what are, in fact, profound cultural mutations and in general survive largely because they end up escaping examination in the climate in which they are taken as the undeniable framework for any argument. What is he saying? He's saying, look, when you actually examine this, there's no knockdown argument against the afterlife or God or transcendent reality, objective right and wrong, any of those things. There's no knockdown arguments against it. Rather, our modern, a-religious, secular world is simply assumed as the default. Like the sitcom set, we aren't supposed to think about what's above, behind, around, outside of our day-to-day life. And yet it's hard to shake the nagging question, is this all that there is? If this life is all that there is, if one day not only will we die, but everyone who currently knows us will die, and everyone who even remembers hearing about us will die, and one day the sun will expand and probably consume the earth, and there won't be anyone left in the entire universe to even remember that we ever existed. If that's all there is to life, then to die is surely not gain. Indeed, if that's all there is, there seems to be no meaning or reason for the sort of self-sacrificial living that Paul and ultimately Christ model for us. What does it matter? It's all going to be consumed by the sun one day anyways. Actually, I, I was reading the latest is that maybe the sun won't consume the earth, but it will get big enough to consume the inner planets and then small enough that we can't live on earth anymore. Either way, the point stands. There'll be no one left in the universe to remember us. But Paul has a much grander vision of reality. There's more than just this life. Belief in life after death is mocked as pie in the sky when you die. People who believe in the afterlife are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. And that may well be the case for some Christians. But Paul's grander vision of reality certainly did not lead to being too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. Paul lived one of the most world-shaping lives ever lived. And if you think about it, Paul has shaped the world that we live in far more profoundly than Alexander the Great did, or Napoleon Bonaparte, or Hitler, or whoever. This is one of the most impactful lives ever lived, and yet it's lived in light of the life to come. Life here is training for our life with Christ. Our life refines our capacity to see God in the life to come. And because there's more than just this life, things like self-denial, self-sacrifice, virtue are meaningful. Imagine uh, life is nothing but a giant Chinese buffet. You never leave the buffet. You never do anything different besides go to the buffet line, pick out food, and eat it. If that's the entirety of reality, that's your entire life, what possible reason could there ever be for not taking another plate of Chinese food, for denying yourself? But of course, life is more than just a Chinese buffet. 
Chinese buffets are a good part of life. It's a good blessing. And yet there's more to life than just that. And so there is good reasons for self-denial. And in a sense, that's what I'm saying about the entire universe. There's more than just this. And so there's reasons to deny ourselves in this life, in light of the life to come. And so because Paul knows there's more than just this life, he says, I will rejoice. I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. What, what's he talking about? This will turn out for my deliverance. Well, Paul writes to the Romans that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, this will work together for my deliverance. This imprisonment, these envious, jealous preachers that preach in order to afflict me, uh, this difficult situation, in, all of this will work together for my good, for salvation. And that's the second thing. What is this deliverance Paul is confident in? Uh, deliverance could mean deliverance from prison. And it does seem like Paul's hoping for that in verse 25. But the word he uses here is simply the ordinary word for salvation in a comprehensive sense. And this phrase is identical to Job uh, 13, 16. This will work together for my salvation. And there Job clearly refers to his vindication before God. And so something like this must be Paul's sense. He goes on to say in this complex sentence, uh, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance or salvation since Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Saying whether I live, stay in prison, I die in prison, I'm set free, no matter what, it will work for my salvation. Paul's saying, however, this Roman trial turns out, whatever they declare, guilty, not guilty, whatever sentence they hand down, I already know the verdict before the throne, the judgment that really matters before God. God has already declared me innocent through Christ Jesus. And so whatever happens in this life will work for my salvation. And indeed, whether by life or by death, Christ will be honored. This leads us to the second truth then we need to consider. To live is Christ. To live is Christ. To live provides us opportunities to more fully know and love and serve Christ. To live is Christ. For Paul, nothing more needs to be said. Well, friends, we've sung together this morning, give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. But I wonder, can we really say with Paul to live is Christ, full stop? Or do we say something like to live is Christ plus family or work or wealth or comfort or excitement? Is Christ sufficient we sing, give me Jesus, but is that really enough to satisfy us? Imprisoned, chained to a Roman guard, dependent on the generosity of others for his food and clothing, Paul can say, to live Christ for joy. You see verse 20, Paul says, this is my eager hope and expectation. I was shamed, but with full courage, now all Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Uh, this word he uses here for courage means uh, a plain or open. It doesn't conceal anything. Therefore, it's bold or courageous. It's not trying to hide anything. It's just straightforward. The word he uses here for honor, uh, probably honor is not the best translation, but magnify. It's a little bit different than the typical word for, for honor. Um, magnifying glasses were invented in the 13th century by Roger Bacon. So after Paul's day, uh, Paul's not thinking of a literal magnifying glass, but it does give us a good picture of what Paul's talking about. It illustrates for us Paul's idea here. The magnifying glass doesn't literally make my 
page larger, but it magnifies what I see. It helps me to see it more clearly, more big, uh, a bigger, more clear picture. And that's what Paul's saying is his hope, his eager expectation and hope that as his life goes on, he will be refined like a magnifying glass. And so Christ might be seen more clearly and plainly through his earthly life. The Roman Empire thinks that by imprisoning Paul and eventually executing him, they can show their power and their might and their authority. But what does Paul say? He says, Christ is the true king. And so whether I remain in prison, whether I die for him, whether I'm set free and continue to preach him, it is actually Christ that will be magnified and shown clearly to be the king of all creation through my life. So Tertullian in the second century wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Whenever empires try to stamp out the church by putting Christians to death, as the Roman Empire is trying to do to Paul here, they only end up fanning the flames as martyrs die honoring Christ in their bodies. But notice that Paul doesn't just honor Christ by the sheer strength of resolve. Do you see back in verse 19 towards the beginning of this long sentence, He says this hope will come about through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We magnify Christ in our lives. He's only seen clearly as we live by the supply or help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Christ-honoring life is a Spirit-dependent life. In John 16, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Excuse me. And part of the Spirit's work in glorifying Jesus is working within us so that Jesus Christ is seen clearly through us. That's part of what it means for the Spirit to glorify Christ. In Romans 5, Paul says uh, that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As the Spirit of Jesus Christ pours the love of God, the same love that God had for his eternal Son from all eternity, into our hearts, we're transformed to be more like his Son. We're slowly, painfully transformed so that our lives will magnify Christ. But perhaps even more remarkable, Paul says that he's confident this will happen because of the prayers of the Philippians. A couple weeks ago, we already looked at Paul's prayer for the Philippians, and now he's saying his own salvation is in part the result of the Philippians' prayers for him. That's a profound mystery, isn't it? God, who began a good work and will surely bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, does that good work in part through the prayers of his saints. Paul's world-shaping life, or behind Paul's world-shaping life, stand the prayers of anonymous saints in Philippi. It's an encouraging thought. We don't know the names of these men or women in Philippi who faithfully prayed for Paul, and yet we see the results of their work. Uh, Even when we read Philippians today, we see the results of their work. It should be a great encouragement to our own prayers. Do you realize how important prayer is? It may be the single most lasting thing that you do in this life, to pray. Paul sees that to die is gain for himself, and we're going to reflect on that more in just a moment. But he sees that to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he says, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all 
for your progress and joy in the faith so that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Uh, do you see again here this, this approving of what's excellent? It would be better for me to be present with Christ and yet it's better for you that I remain and so that's what I'm going to approve of. Not only is Paul caught up in this great Trinitarian drama of salvation that the Spirit's at work within him to glorify Christ who the Father sent to save him, but he sees the Philippians caught up in that story as well. There's a reciprocal relationship. Paul rejoices in his certain salvation, which follows in part from the Philippians' prayer for him. And he looks forward to when the Philippians will rejoice in their faith when Paul appears to them. That they are mutually encouraging each other to rejoice in God's work. And so through this reasoning, Paul provides us with this example of approving what is excellent. To live as Christ, but to die as gain, both are good. Indeed, to be with Christ is better for Paul, and yet to remain in the flesh is better for the Philippians. And so that's what Paul ultimately approves. But this brings us to the third truth, the heart of the matter. Paul says, to die is gain. To die is gain. Paul's point is not just that the manner of the Christian's death might bring honor to Christ. That is true. Even more, though, he's saying death is the entry point into a grander life, into a more true life. C.S. Lewis describes death as the school term is over, the holidays have begun, the dream is ended, this is the morning. That's what death's like. It's like truly waking up. If to live is Christ, that is an opportunity to know and love and serve Christ, then to die means an even deeper, more profound union with Christ, to know him more deeply, to love him and serve him more deeply for all eternity. Look at verse 23. Here, uh, Paul gives us a profound picture of the Christian death. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. To die is simply to depart for the, from the flesh. It's like a camping trip. He's saying it's time to break camp and move on to our next destination. Of course, this doesn't take the pain or fear or sorrow out of dying. And Paul recognizes this. In chapter 2, we're going to see he writes that a, his friend Epaphroditus was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. For Epaphroditus to die would be gain, and yet Paul recognizes that for him and those left behind, it would be sorrow upon sorrow. He recognizes that the process of dying would be sorrowful for Epaphroditus. There is real sorrow and pain in Christian death, and yet that's not all that there is in Christian death. There's more than just this life. And so here is Paul's simple confidence. This is no to sleep perchance to dream. No, Paul says to die is to depart and be with Christ. He knows what will come. To be with Christ, says Paul, is far better. And this is the central truth about the life to come for Paul, that you will be with Christ and that is far better. There's no speculation about whether we will be conscious until the resurrection, about what the disembodied might, state might be like, where we'll be, all those sorts of things. Paul doesn't speculate on any of that. He just puts forward this one simple, preeminent, central truth. For the Christian to depart from this life is to be with Christ, and that is far better. 
Christ, by his own death, has removed death's sting. There is now nothing to fear. A few weeks ago, when Queen Elizabeth died, she was buried inside a chapel. And it may not have struck you as particularly strange, especially if you've been to Europe. There's lots of people buried inside of churches. It just seems like the thing to do. And yet, according to Roman law in Paul's day, the dead had to be buried miles away from the city so that the living would not be contaminated. Now, there may be some public health sense in that. I don't really know. Someone else can answer that question. But what I do know is that Christians place their dead right in the center of their public gatherings. Uh, uh, The Romans buried their dead far miles away from the city. The Christians bury their dead right around their churches. Early Christians would assemble for prayer in tombs. They would worship Christ among the bones of their dead. Believers would raise the body of martyrs over their heads in the air and parade them through the streets like trophies, something to be proud of. At funerals, they would gaze lovingly on the bodies of departed saints and sing psalms of praises. And such behavior shocked their pagan neighbors. Of course, the church got goofy on some of this stuff with uh, honoring the relics of saints, that sort of thing. And yet, do you see this basic shift that Paul is pointing to here? With Christ's death and his resurrection, the sting of death is gone. And so now to die is to depart and to be with Christ. And that is far better. This brings a fundamentally different attitude towards death than we have anywhere else in the world. An observation and an invitation as we conclude. Notice again for Paul, believing that there is more than just this life doesn't diminish his attention to the needs of the world. Just the opposite. Paul's belief in transcendent reality that there's a God who is at work and who will bring all things to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, that the spirit of Jesus Christ is at work within him, that he will be with Christ when he departs from this life. His belief in all of that transcendent reality makes life purposeful and meaningful for Paul. It doesn't detract from the life in this world, but adds to it. It motivates Paul to live self-sacrificially, literally choosing what is better for others over what is better for himself. So Paul says, I'm looking for what is fruitful labor. That's the observation. Here's the invitation. Friends, maybe you do not have any confidence like this in the face of death. Maybe even talking about death this much this morning makes you uncomfortable. Friend, there is a way to face death with confidence and to live a life with meaning. It's the refrain running through Paul's paragraph. Christ. Christ. Christ's spirit within me, honoring Christ in my body. To live is Christ. To depart is to be with Christ. And all things are to the glory of Christ. Jesus Christ died and rose again. Here is the way to face death with confidence and to live life with meaning. And the invitation is open to you even this morning. To face death with confidence through Christ. To live life with meaning through Christ. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are faithful, that you are faithful, and so you who began a good work in your saints will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We thank you that your spirit is at work within your saints, making them more like Christ so that they would honor your son Jesus through their bodies, whether in life or in death. 
Some here, Lord, perhaps are not ready or don't find themselves united to Christ. And so I ask by your spirit, you would be working even now in their hearts, drawing them to your son. Others of us, Lord, have forgotten that we do indeed believe that there is more than just this life. It's easy in the humdrum day-to-day of work and busyness to forget about all that we believe beyond this life. But keep this eternal prize fixed before our eyes. Let us follow Paul's model, approving what is excellent, living this life as yours, that to live for us would be Christ, and looking ahead that the day of our death would be gain as we gain Christ Jesus himself. We offer these prayers in the name of Jesus who made a way for us to return to you, who made the possibility of life beyond death, and by the power of your Holy Spirit that is at work within your saints. Amen.